0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: It's it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live.
2: Your guide on the side.
0: What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: We talk about uh, loving families and we've got to build families. And you may even do and believe strongly in your family that you know one of you uh, needs needs to stay home and be with the family and raise your family and there's a lot of pressure to to how do you make ends meet when like we heard earlier it's really hard without a dual income to make ends meet um so at some point we have to we have to really co-parent we have to learn to to be together as parents um on our family issues i see a lot of parenting issues dividing couples up and we fight about things, we fight about chores, and we fight about discipline, and we fight about everything. Right? So, at some point, we need to we need to figure out how to how to work better together. And I wanted to give you some ideas um, that uh, that that might help as we as we go through life. One idea that I think is super important is if if it's not working in your family, if you don't feel like you're working really well together. Um, as a as a partnership, one of my I, I mean a lot of times we would just blame one partner. you know, he's not helping out, she's not helping out. But one of the things that I teach, and it it happens to be one of my favorite um, quotes because just symbolically, I think it, it means a lot. It says uh, the, the quote is simply that all systems reflect their creator. Okay? So if a system is really one-sided, then um, it, there may be uh, the issue may not be just willingness from everyone else. It may be that whoever's creating the system has created it in a one sided way, and an example of this is simply um, if you notice that no one else around the house helps, is there something you are doing that might be enabling others to not help? Uh, for example, have you made it so that the level of of quality for what has to be done can really only be accomplished by you or at least it could only be accomplished by you in the beginning. For example, how you clean a dish, how you uh, wash something. Um, Is it just – have you gotten to the point that it's just easier for you to do it yourself than to not let others do it because they don't seem to do it right? Um, And so – but think about that because almost inevitably when I see somebody – who has nobody helping around the house? Many times I see that same person being a perfectionist, and nobody in the house feels like they can do it to your level. They don't. They they've been critiqued so many times. There's too much intensity about it, um, or there's fear about how they can get it done. So start to ask yourself, what are you doing or not doing to enable you or your partner? to not be as involved in the parenting.
2: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: What are you thinking that might make it easier to just do it yourself rather than having your partner participate? What did you do uh, uh, parenting a newborn that is different now than how you need to parent your teens? I mean, a lot of times we might hand more over to the mother of the newborn because she's feeding the baby. She's, she might you know, have the baby on her hip more, so she ended up doing more. But when we move into teendom and older kids and toddlers and adolescents, things change. And so is there a way that we can actually make that transition? Do you have certain expectations that your spouse just doesn't meet? And uh, do you keep bringing those expectations up? Do you have anxiety about uh, what needs to be done, how it needs to be done? One of my rules is whoever cares the most, whoever has the most you know energy anxiety frustration issue about something, really I think should be the owner of it if 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 you have more anxiety about how something needs to be than I do, then you probably ought to own it so that you can you know go manage it the way you want to manage it. But what gets harder is where you have a lot of the issue or anxiety or frustration from it, and um, and you you need to get me involved. That's where we need to start having conversations. Another rule is we got to get on the same page, right? Nothing is more uh, important to co-parenting than than communicating and making that work where we start to have some discussions, some questions. Some things we ought to be discussing is, what kinds of parents do you guys really want to be? And go talk about it. What roles do you, do you want to play? Do you, do you want to just – I think a lot of us just default to you know, typical, kind of stereotypical roles. Dad does the outside stuff. Mom does the inside stuff. But, I mean, you may live in a day and age where those roles don't work for your family anymore. So what, do we, what roles do we need to play? And what are you guys actually willing to sacrifice? You might even want to create a little ranking process where we can rank how we're doing as parents in our areas on a scale from 1 to 10 rank how well you're both doing as the the kind of parent you want to be. Sometimes when you measure it, you actually notice we're a little bit off. And then have more and more discussions about how to be and how to improve our co parenting skills. If if we want to be better co parents, we can do it. We just have to do it uh in a way that um we're actually intentionally focused on it. We don't need to we don't need more excuses, we don't need more uh reasons to blame somebody. What we need is We need to put the co in it.
2: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: It's important as a a couple, as a partnership, to find some time with each other. And so I've decided I'm going to put together some time savers, ways that you as a couple could actually find more time to be together. Again, you're only given so much time anyway, right? So many minutes a day, so much time. And if you're not able to find time for each other, it might be simply because you're misinterpreting or misunderstanding what time you could be using. Uh, One of my first rules, and for years I used to teach, you know, maybe a great tool is divide and conquer. You go one way, you take the kids one way, have your wife go another way. We would divide up, but then we'd be able to quickly get through all of our tasks and then spend time together at the end of the day. Well, I've decided that was some bad advice, and I'm sorry I ever thought of it, because what I have now come to understand is... Maybe what we ought to do is instead of dividing and conquering, what if we've tried to unite and conquer? If our goal is to have time with each other, then let's quit let's quit dividing in order to then eventually sometime down the road or later in the day be able to have time together. Why don't we actually spend more time today going and doing our doing our chores, doing our activities, doing our our to-do list together? What if we could actually go run errands together as a couple? And maybe go grocery shopping and either do it together side by side or actually um, break off and have one of us run and get, you know, the bread and one go get the milk and we meet back and but let's do it together. And then we get in the car and we can talk and we use the time together throughout the day. Sure, it might take you a little bit more time, but you would also finally have the time together instead of just hoping that uh, somehow you're going to find time at the end of the day. Another little uh, tool I might suggest is that you use some productivity apps. Um, My wife now is my – she's my executive assistant. She's basically my office manager, in fact. And uh, ever since she's been working for me, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been so much better for our relationship. We're on the same page. We now are using the same apps with each other. And what I mean by that is she uses Google Calendar. I use Google Calendar. We can combine our lists. We can actually get our children's calendars uh, and our teenagers to put their calendars together, and they become part of our calendar. We have shared to-do lists. We have shared note pages. We have shared camera streams. So, every picture she takes, I can see it. I can get access to it. We have uh, you know we can access each other 's Amazon wish list if we want there 's just a lot of great technology out there that we can use to partner better and and to be together. So use the apps that you 've got out there and, and and take advantage of those. Another simple rule I use is to watch out for your transition times. I call them transition time are those moments between one activity and another. When you arrive home from work, let's say, that is what I call a transition moment, and there is time and something magical in that moment that you could leverage in your marriage. Uh, After dinner, before we start cleaning up the dinner, there is a magical moment there of transition where if you would just hang on five or ten more minutes, you might be able to have a great conversation there. When you go to bed, Uh, That's a transition time going, you know, from whatever, watching a show to going to bed. That time of transition is a wonderful moment where you might be able to pick up some time to spend uh, and actually connect with your spouse. So look through your day and try to identify these moments of transition and see if you can stretch more time out of those. Another little basic uh, idea I give is to share your social media accounts. We spend so much time trying to get everything posted to all of our social media to keep up with everybody else. But what if we actually shared the account together with our spouse and we had a couple's account, and we could both post to it. We could both post interesting parts of our day. It's a great great way to connect with each other, so we're, we're doing that, but it also might give us some more time because we don't have to both do it individually. Now it's something that we can see together, do together, share together. We could even then go through our page together and see what all of our friends are doing, and it might actually bring us together. And then last but not least, let's start learning that we've got to adopt, it's not just about saying no to everyone else, We have to say yes to the marriage. If you want a healthy marriage where we have time together, you got to say yes. You got to make time for it and space for it. And really, we've got to figure out a way to not just have time, but make the time valuable. Um, And so that might be a great place to disconnect from technologies and just actually have some more time to talk. But it's not enough to just say no to everything else. At some point, you also have to say yes to the marriage. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier family life. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nothing seems to be more complicated than our mental health uh, uh, approach in this country. We see story after story, we hear of suicide rates climbing. We hear of uh, access and ability to treat certain people for mental health issues, and just the privacy needs, the cultural impact. So we wanted to talk about, um, we've we've heard the suicide rates are are on the rise. And uh, we found a wonderful article um, that is, I think, very enlightening about some of the numbers and how they impact us culturally and depending on the culture we're from. So we wanted to bring in an expert who could walk us through that today. Dr. Kimia Davis is joining us. She's an associate professor of sociology and criminal studies at Salem College and uh, wrote a wonderful article um, titled Suicide Isn't Just a white people thing. And uh, Kimia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is, you know, it it really, it was kind of mind-boggling to me because, again, this is one of those things that we don't think about. We do hear that over and over that uh, the the white population tend to be um, those that are more likely, more prone, um, have a higher risk of committing suicide, except you're talking uh, in your article, you talk about the fact that we may be underestimating the impact, the reality of suicide in some of our minority communities as well?
3: Yes. So uh, as a criminologist, my focuses are on suicide, suicidal self-harm, and other forms of violence. And the way I look at it is um, you can look at the ways that people harm themselves and harm other people. And, And so... One thing to consider is when we talk about suicidal thoughts, we don't have data on how many, of course, people are thinking suicidal thoughts and how many people attempt suicide. And that's definitely even lower when we're talking about racial and ethnic groups where suicide is even more stigmatized and even more silenced. Mm. And so um, this past winter term, I taught a course about the cultural dynamics of mental health services and suicide prevention services. Because my students told me, they were like, Dr. Dennis, this is an important topic, and they don't hear about it. Like, they didn't really hear about it until they took my courses. They say, Dr. Dennis, until I took your courses, I had never heard anyone in my family or community discuss this topic.
0: Mm. It's true. I guess this is so important because the numbers the numbers matter to all communities because the numbers it seems like would also determine the the focus on where we focus our care, how much care communities get, where we pay attention and what we pay attention to.
3: Exactly. Uh, so, one common issue is that 99% of mental health organizations and suicide prevention organizations are considered to be power dominant in terms of demographics. So when you look at the people who work for the organizations, people who are on the board of directors, the majority of donors, the majority of researchers, the majority of research topics, they tend to represent white, middle, upper class, um, higher socioeconomic status in terms of education, occupation, and also majority heterosexual, cisgender. And that's not intentional, oftentimes. Um, it, it's a representation of the population size. But one thing that organizations don't consider is how that reflects on outreach effort. Um, so many organizations are not doing outreach efforts, but when they do outreach efforts, you have to consider how your organization looks. Hmm. For example, if your organization is predominantly heterosexual cisgender, Will LGBT communities be like, hey, this looks like me, let me go get help. So that's why we have organizations devoted to reaching certain groups, not because these groups don't want to reach the mainstream organizations, but because these are already issues that are really silenced in these communities. And, um, so and that example, is cultural,
0: right? I mean, some of that's, yeah, give us the example.
3: Yeah, so it's it's a combination. It's, It's cultural. It's within people's families. It's also religious for most uh, groups that are intertwined with religion. But it's also part of society where no matter where you go. So, for instance, when I ask people to meet me at mental health organizations, because I know people won't go if I leave it up to them, I say, well, I'll meet you there at 12 o'clock. When they show up, there's nobody in the organization oftentimes who quote-unquote, looks like them or may have a similar background as them, so they already feel ashamed, Mm. right? So imagine what it feels like to walk into an environment where you really need help, right? You need help for substance abuse. You need help for suicidal thoughts, and you walk in, and the doctor does not have any real cultural similarities to you. Um, And that's also linked to when we talk about the DSM, um, I'm very critical of the DSM, not because I don't respect the experts, but because the DSM has been updated in the past. Because previously, "quote unquote" homosexuality was in the DSM, right? So the DSM and is so the
0: diagnostic good. manual used by therapists yes. to determine, you know, officially what is a diagnosis of a mental health issue and what isn't.
3: Exactly right. And you're critical so of it because it
0: doesn't—it's rep- not culturally represented.
3: Well, I think that it's a template, and we need to understand the difference between a template and how to practically apply the template. So when I do presentations and community work, I always tell mental health practitioners, medical doctors, that you can't wait until your career has started to now say you want to do a diversity workshop. <laughs> diversity inclusivity, I, I use the phrase three hundred sixty five days diversity. Yeah. So the moment someone becomes pre med in undergrad, they need to start taking courses and every course needs to include a demographic variant. And that's one thing that we do a lot in the social sciences. So as a criminologist all of my courses, whether it's I teach serial killers, for goodness sakes, my serial killers course breaks it down by demographics in terms of the serial killers and the victims. Mm. So everything that I do includes mental health components, suicidal ideation components, and I break every course down by demographics. So, And that's what I want mental health practitioners, nurses, medical doctors, I want everyone to grasp. That we as people, there's nothing that we do that's not correlated. It doesn't have to be caused by, it, but it's correlated with our culture. It's correlated with what we were taught since childhood. It's correlated with spirituality, uh, religion. So, for instance, when we do programs in predominantly Hispanic and predominantly African American communities, it's very common for people to say, Well, I pray it away. Mm hmm. Or there are people who believe going to the doctor is demonic, or people who believe that, you know, believing that all of this is a a result of just not praying enough. And there's still people in 2018 who will tell you if they hear voices, they believe that it's demonic possession. And, And I explain to people, so let's, if we want to use a spiritual angle, let's address how God gave us these resources to use for a reason. And so that's that's a way that I want medical experts to know that this is not about just doing a diversity training. This is about how we need to address how culture, demographics are a component of all of this and students need to be taught this from the moment they declare themselves as pre-med.
0: Yeah we're speaking with Dr. Kimia Dennis who is a uh, an associate professor of sociology and criminal studies at Sa- at Salem College and uh in her part of her expertise she's been focusing on suicide and just our our ability to understand it cross-culturally um because again like you're saying the culture impacts Everything. I mean, I, I think of the the BMI index that doctors use about your weight to determine your level of obesity, and we've had people on our show talking about the origination of that was it was it's mm-hmm. a, it's a device, a tool used for a male, and yet it's yeah. now been generalized to the female body as well, and it's it's kind of it, it just doesn't it's it doesn't inc- it's it doesn't take into account the the real diversity I think of human uh, of humans, and so I think. Yeah. Part of what you're teaching us is it's important and especially in suicide, because a lot of people think it's a white thing um and yet mm-hmm. culturally it's happening. Talk about how how it might in by us misunderstanding it how it might be for example impacting. Uh, the um, the American Indian, the Native Americans, uh, mm-hmm. and the minority or the African American community how how is our our lack of accurate information impacting their communities?
3: Yeah, so and and also when we talk about Asian diaspora communities, so mm. it's impacting because when I do collaborations with suicide prevention organizations and I, and I say, well, let's address demographic cultural variants. It's very common for people to respond with, well, whites have the highest rate of suicide. Right. Right. And, and I have to remind people that that's the highest rate of completed suicides, but that's also in proportion to population size. So whites are about 77% of the United States population, including, white hispanics so when we talk about like violent crime we're talking about disproportionate representation of african-americans in comparison to population size when we're talking about suicide we're talking about proportionate representation of whites Mm. whites being 77 percent, therefore being represented highly in suicide and that's various forms of suicide with for white men in particular it's mostly firearm-based suicide and so that notion, though, that, well, whites are the highest rate, therefore we're just going to really reach whites, um, it really ties into what I said previously, where if you're intentionally reaching whites, just be honest about that,
1: right? Yeah, yeah.
3: But but usually organizations are not intentionally only reaching whites. It's just so embedded in the organization that they really don't do demographic data for their organization. So that's why I tell people... Do demographic data. Do an annual assessment where you you address the demographics of your organization. Do an evaluation and say, who's in my organization? Who showed up at these events? What demographics do they represent? And so this is how it has a trickle-down effect, though, on American Indian, Alaskan Native populations in particular, because we now have organizations formed for the sole basis of addressing opioid addiction, substance mm. abuse, suicide in, in American Indian, Alaskan native populations. However, these organizations need grants, right? Yeah. And we have to say to whom are they competing to get this money, right? Um, you know, they're oftentimes competing for federal dollars, for state, local money, Right. Um, they need volunteers, and and I keep telling people, if you keep supporting these mainstream organizations, you're taking away resources that are really needed for these populations that have been really, really, really disadvantaged and not always by choice, right? Right. And, um, and, it, and we can also use your BMI example as an example. When we talk about body mass index, it doesn't address different body types right. that are linked to different cultures of people.
0: So true. So We're, true, you know, right? but we I mean, throw it out there all <laughs> the time as the standard that yeah. everyone's accepted, but it's biased.
3: Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, so we have cultures of people where having a large torso is normal. Right. We're having a larger stomach, larger hips, a larger butt. Yeah. If you have a personal trainer, they oftentimes will try to get rid of that big butt, <laughs> whereas that's very connected to your culture right. and your, your family genetics, right? And and so that's really an example of what the DSM and what organizations are doing And I always tell people when I talk about this, there's no need to tense up in terms of being offended. This is not a personal attack. It's more so saying, let's stop the word games. Let's stop putting blinders on and pretending that this isn't happening. Right. Because what happens is when people pretend this isn't happening, organizations pretend it's not happening. And then the bad outcome, people say, how did this happen? it happened because decades
0: you're pretending this isn't happening it's so true and then and then we we but we're smart enough you know we're smart enough to figure this out but we're maybe not smart enough to it doesn't seem like we haven't been focused enough to move the needle or like to like you know to start thinking more cross culturally Especially as we're allocating funds. I mean, if you weren't allocating mm-hmm. funds, that's one thing. But when all of a sudden, you know, Native Americans or Native Alaskan, uh, Alaskan natives can't get the funding they need, even though they have the highest suicide rate um, and mm-hmm. self harm rate. I mean, it's it's sad. It's tragic.
3: Yeah, and and you know what? I have to challenge this notion of smart enough to figure it out.
1: Yeah, what's to be going quite on then?
3: With you, <laughs> I don't think it's about smart enough to figure this out I think it's about three dynamics power privilege and money mm-hmm. and because here's the thing if it was really about just listen, just listening to us and saying we're going to implement demographic cultural variance courses and all pre-med courses you're going to be required to learn that throughout your career as you're getting your mental health license and so forth if it was really that simple people would have said been there done that right right but instead um, it's not a requirement for accreditation for most institutions and most programs so you can go through your entire pre-med program you can go through medical school you can become a mental health practitioner and your accreditation does not require any proof that you've learned about cultural variants in suicide, in mental health, in physical health. You can put the word culture in there randomly yeah. from your annual assessment, but there's no need to require that culture means anything for your totally. program. It's true. So that's why I say it's not about being smart enough. It's about organizations, companies, and schools just doing the surface-level task. And yeah and uh, not really wanting to challenge. Um, I mean, you really have to challenge the establishment. You really have to tear it down. And it's okay to offend people. It's That's social change. Like, if people walked around smiling during social change, that means social change isn't happening, right? Something,
0: something's not changing, <laughs> right?
3: You know, you know, there's no such thing ever as social change resulting from kumbaya, right? right? So I tell organizations, you know, if you hire me as a consultant, if you have me as a speaker, whatever you have me do, just recognize that there are going to be some really angry people. And that includes professors who are now going to be required to revamp their courses, to change their learning outcomes for their programs. And I think that's a good thing. We can't just leave it up to people to say, hey, I think I'll implement this. Well, you know, how successful has that been? When we're talking about suicidal self-harm, if you do a community event, you cannot act, act baffled if the majority of people who come to the community event are white middle class. White working class, white poor, are not going to come to these suicide prevention events. Right. African-Americans, people of Asian descent, Alaskan Natives, Hispanics are not going to come to most suicide events. Not necessarily because they might not be having suicidal thoughts. Like A lot of people are having suicidal thoughts, but they think they can self-heal. They think they can self-medicate they think they can pray it away or have positive thoughts or keep themselves busy or the whole opioid issue right alcoholism I mean these are all ways and whites do the same thing in terms of self-healing however you know being the population size majority you're more likely to see whites at these events but still you're still less likely to see poor whites because poor whites feel judged as well this notion that you know your your suicidal thoughts are because you know, you're a poor white person Yeah, and, and, um, and we can't help you. And, and also insurance comes into all this as well. Oh, when we tell people to get help, you know, but you've got to be, yeah. In.
0: Yeah. And you've got to be, ins- yeah. And the and the insurance are the ones and, and the insurance are held by certain populations as well. Uh, Kimia, I wish we had more time. This is such a, such an important topic you're bringing up. And I, I just appreciate so much your willingness to, uh, to push on all of us and our thinking, are and and really, if we want to change suicide, then we have to understand suicide from a multi diverse cultural approach. Um, otherwise, you are only going to have a certain population ever showing up, and not be able to even access those that d- don't believe uh, a similar way. Powerful stuff. Again, Kemia Dennis is her name, Dr. Kemia Dennis. She's an associate professor of sociology and criminal studies at Salem College and author of the article, Suicide Isn't Just a White People Thing. We will continue uh, giving you the insights you need so that you can live a healthier life and uh, try to understand those around you as well. There are reasons people are making these difficult decisions that they make, and um, most of us, I don't even think we fully understand. We don't even partially understand the the diversity that goes on um, in this world, do we? Interesting stuff. We'll continue the journey. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
2: Because life
0: doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching coin. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, I had a chance yesterday to go to uh, my wife's book group. And in her, I mean, it's not something I, I do often, but uh, I happened to be with her, and she invited me, and I went and heard a friend of mine, uh, a friend I grew up with, his uh, name is Dr. David Colliker, he uh, is a... Um, was a endodontist and um, practices an endodontist, and he's he wrote a book titled "Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor," and he's my age, uh, forty nine years old, and has a brain tumor, and has had it for about I think uh, seven plus nine years, I think, and uh, you know he talked about he talks about in the book the impact of a brain tumor, but really everybody needs it because in the end it takes you. Back to what really is most important, and some of the the interesting things we're going to have him on the show sometime in the future. But um, it, it really is interesting the discussion we had about when one of us is sick uh, and others start noticing it. Kind of a lot of the lessons that have that that come about because of that. He talked about how they, um, as a family, they they didn't want everybody involved. It wasn't a Everybody' decision. It was their families processing uh, this this situation, and he he he, you know, was very private about it. He was a practicing endodontist. You don't want your endodontist to have a brain tumor, and so if everybody knew about the brain tumor, um, even though it wasn't impairing him physically uh, at that time, he didn't want everyone to know about it. And does do we have the right to that privacy? Think about all these stars that and famous people that the minute they start acting a little strange, people start throwing out their their health issues. Think about what we've what's happened with president um uh Trump and his health and everybody questioning his mental health or Hillary Clinton and her physical health. Now, I get it if, if they're going to be the president, but what about just your dentist? There were stories told about the fact that. You know, people would try to figure stuff out by asking the kids of this person. So how's, what's going on with your dad? I, I, I noticed that uh, this is going on. What's going on? So they're like shaking down the kids to get the information. Or they they also talked about just the impact it had on the family and how and how you have to go through the process of deciding what to tell what kids at what age and how the kids can process certain things. Um, it was just an amazing experience to watch m- somebody that was is basically me um, going through such a very difficult process and then to watch how his wife uh, who was we've grown up with we all went to high school together we were all really good friends to watch how she's taken care of him and uh, and how you just deal with it um, how at first you think you don't know how you can overcome it but you're overcoming it and you're handling it, and everyone can, in the end, handle it. He also brought up uh, some pretty interesting points about the power of friends. Um, how a lot of friends would come over, and you know, the friends would come over and say, "Hey, can, what can I do to help? I know I want to help. I need to do. So, I want to do something to help." And you know, she would always just say, "Oh no, we're good. We're good. We're good." And then the other friends that just say, "No, we're bringing you dinner every Wednesday. It's just going to happen." So. Just deal with it. You don't have to eat it, but we're going to bring it to you. And they just brought it. And she said, amazingly, it was the greatest blessing of all time because for some reason, every Wednesday is when her life would fall apart. But she always knew her friends would be bringing her dinner. And so maybe a lot of us need to learn simply the idea that we don't always have to ask if we can help. Maybe sometimes you just need to intuit or sense if they need the help. And then if they do, just organize it. You can always freeze, you know, some food that that somebody brings over. You can take a casserole and put the casserole in the freezer if you've got too much food. But other than that, just serve and give and care. And it, they've talked about the fact about how, how everything is more important now, how everybody in the family is now more willing to pick up and, and help around the house. Um when uh, the mom, Susan Colicker would ask, you know, one of the kids to take the garbage out or who wants to take the garbage out? If none of the kids respond, then Dave, who has the brain tumor and is uh, now in a wheelchair, would say, oh, I'll take it out. And everybody, all the kids immediately would jump up and run to go take the garbage out. So even though it is a horrendous thing to go through, um, they talked about the fact that there's benefits. It's changing their family. It's changing the fact that they know they know more clearly what matters most. They know the importance of family and how it comes first. They say, I love you more. They're more connected. They're more real. And the the benefit is something that was supposed to create a life expectancy of five years has given David nine. And so, they feel grateful and they feel like they're living on borrowed time, but they're grateful for it. And um, I, I guess everybody in the end of the book group, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, maybe not everybody needs a brain tumor. But if we could learn the lessons of it um, and, and take in the, the lessons. And why I bring it up is um, it's uh, it's brain I – I think it's like brain health awareness month and the funny thing about our lives the funny thing about our health is very rarely do we ever get our brains scanned um but today you know there's a lot that can go wrong in your brain and we don't pay attention to it we know that everyone wears pink for breast cancer awareness uh this is the month where you wear gray for gray matter awareness cuz gray matter is the healthy uh is the healthy brain tissue and so Just be thinking about it and just be grateful and know that uh, you may not need a brain tumor, but you can live the lessons that we all learn. Again, the name of the book is Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor. Um, David Collicker is the author. He wrote it with his son, John. It's just a quick read. It's something you could read in a night, but it is something, too, that uh, you might want to read with your kids and talk about the importance of family and all the other principles that come with it. Anyway, we'll continue the journey and uh, continue to follow the life of David Collicker, a good friend and just a a great teacher for all of us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Do you ever feel like the weekend simply isn't long enough? When it comes down to it, you have about two and a half days, right? That doesn't seem like nearly enough time to get the yard work, the home improvement projects done, the kids' soccer games attended, homework, everything else that uh that, and still having some time to relax, so some smaller companies have started implementing a four day work week and have uh, seen success with that. Dr. Paul Powers is a management consul- uh, psychologist and consultant. He joined us not long ago to talk about the pros and cons of the four day work week. I began the interview by asking about the cons. what are the cons of a four day work week
2: well i don't i, I don 't see many except for the fact that we as human beings don't evolve quickly we don't change quickly Uh, people who tell me that oh they're very change skilled and um, you know they can uh, they can adapt very easily I tell them that well as an experiment we sent someone out to your uh, your car in the parking lot and we had them change all the buttons on your radio to see how you like that (laughs) and people people stop for a minute and they look at me and I say, okay, I haven't done that. But but that feeling of, oh, my God, someone was in my space. They were changing things right. around. That's hard for me. I, I suggest that if you want to do a little experiment at home to see how change-skilled you are, uh, take your alarm clock or your clock radio or whatever you use and put it on the other side of the bed. Go into the bathroom, move your toothbrush and your toothpaste to the other side of the sink. Move a few basic things that you do every day, the same thing, the same way, the same time, day after day, and try to change them. And you will suddenly see that we as human beings do not evolve very quickly. Yeah. A few years ago, they found a. Well, actually now about 15 years ago, they found up in the Alps there, there remained, the the uh, as the snow cap uh, uh, goes away. Um, they found uh, this hunter who is you know a thousand years old, and uh, you know he had a very uh,
1: warm clothes
2: and he had had uh, some mushrooms for medicine and, you know, very highly evolved in, in many ways. And I said, wow, way up there in the mountains and whatnot. And uh, they finally result, the, the results came back, This, you know, and he was a man. And my wife said, well, of course he's a man. He hadn't stopped and asked for directions. direction. <laughs> that's that's, that's, he that's why he was He was stuck on the, <laughs> <of> the <mountain. laughs> on
0: the side of the mountain.
2: On the side of the mountain. And he was a, and, and we as human beings, a. Uh, 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 you know I tell that to men to say you know is it easy if you stop and ask for directions and their answer is well with gps now i don't have to i don't have to rely on others i don't have to change my habits or my behaviors uh, think of the places where we park uh you know as as an example so we get into a routine we as human beings uh we tend to do the same thing day after day week after week so so adapting uh, to a changed schedule sometimes is a little discombobulated right oh by by the way, if you 're a human resource person, uh, you now have to jockey uh, people 's work schedules, and that requires a little bit more work and so that I guess could be considered a downsize, except oh by the way, for human resource people that's that 's their job is to, uh, right. is to uh, accommodate people's people's needs. And oh, by the way, when people have a four-day work week or a three-day weekend, um, they feel happier. They have more time for their life. They have more time for their children. And the research, again, found uh, you know, a meta-analysis of over 200, I think it was like 220, 225 studies, found that happy employees have, on average, 31 higher percent productivity, uh, three times higher creativity that it's it's God's gift to productivity and organizational development. Not to mention the benefits to family time. Now there there are some glitches. Let's consider that I want my weekend, but I you know the traditional Saturday and Sunday kind of weekend. But yet I'm in retail. Right well, now we're going to have to do some work because uh, Saturdays and Sundays are the busiest days for retail. So maybe your weekend, does your, even your extended weekend, it doesn't end up on the weekend anymore. So that requires uh, some adjustment. But the eight-hour workday, which, by the way, the, the organized uh, labor movement uh, earned for us all a few generations ago, uh, I talk to many professionals that say, if I only had an eight-hour workday, at least if I'm, um, we're being square with each other and saying I'm here 10 hours a day, but I only have to be here four days, then in fact this whole sort of work expanding, you know, the number of hours we're yeah. there, et cetera, et cetera, is, is uh, a benefit to people's uh, personal lives.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, really, to have the freedom to have uh, the opportunity to, to – because it would alter our family lives. You could even as a family – If you're a dual-income family, you could rotate, you know, dad works Tuesday through Friday, mom works Monday through Thursday, and you now have a parent home, or parents were working only three days out of the week. It could be really a cool opportunity for everybody.
2: Well, good for the kids, good for the parents and the kids to bond and spend time together, et cetera, et cetera. But it also, again, drops to the family bottom line of only needing to pay for professional daycare three out of five days.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh. And so when you think about it, would would there be the day, though, that we, we do move this to a four-hour work week and the efficiency of the younger generation, they're much more efficient with their technology or what have you, would they then just end up paying less? Would it impact how we pay?
2: No, because, uh, well, I, I guess some companies can tr- Try to kind of get away with that, but what that will do is negatively impact their recruiting costs. That's true. Again, um, uh, the, the whole notion of having you know more flexible, uh, more flexibility at work and whatnot uh, tends to uh, uh, save us money in recruiting uh, the employee uh, recruiting costs of uh, employment agencies, uh, contingency agencies, uh, retained executive. Uh, 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 recruiters, executive headhunters, etc. That's a billion dollar. Mm. In fact, it's supposed to be now a little bit, a lot more than that—a uh, billion dollar plus industry in the United States. We could drive those costs down if uh, my, if my, I could drive my company's costs down. Uh, if it was easier for me to recruit people, and uh, by the way, also improving working conditions helps me retain employees. So I don't have to go out and replace as many of them. So, again, that's another human resource uh, uh, savings that drops to the bottom line.
0: That was Dr. Paul Powers, again, a management uh, psychologist and consultant, talking to us about the four-day work week. Interesting stuff. You know, we all could probably find more creative ways to do our work, right, and spend our time This is The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to
4: us. Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: Welcome back, friends. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit.
1: Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our, nice
0: to be Our top-notch producer and social media guru.
1: Oh, well, I think you do me more credit than I deserve.
0: No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about, you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids sitting in (laughs) class studying Latin. I love –
0: that was my favorite subject.
1: You are one of the rare few.
0: I'm fluent in a dead language.
1: Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now um, there's predictions by scientists that – Ninety percent of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone.
0: Ninety percent?
1: Ninety percent. What? Yeah. We're looking at mass extinction when it comes to language right now. Why?
0: Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages?
1: Yeah. So right now there's approximately 7,000 languages that we're aware of on Earth and about... The top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken, and even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used, mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with,
0: like English,
1: English maybe Spanish, Spanish. Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Um,
0: Although kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Em, well, emojis is another language.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: So that is sad because you lose your language, mm-hmm. you lose your culture.
1: Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other to understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up
0: with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some
1: yeah, it's, university. It's still, the thing is though, is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and
0: I guess, is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages?
1: Um, that's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas, and as seawater levels rise, they ha- these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities, and all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment. Changing. Changing our languages. You're
0: listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. And the culture. Yeah. And taking away – the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I, I speak Spanish and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's We have a word like love. Mm-hmm. But you can love a burrito and you can love your wife. It's not
1: the and same thing. And we don't thing.
0: differentiate. <laughs> You know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can.
0: But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that That just means, means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, "Square up, dad." I'm like You want me to punch you? But he just – it's just – I don't know what it is. It's just being – Sounded Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? You want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm-hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming apparently.
1: Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by – you know, decades and centuries before this yeah. of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation mm-hmm. of different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, for years, right. they had forced education things. That they were These kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages and now – Nobody
0: can. Yeah, and we are in our intolerance to everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might – we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages.
1: Yeah, we definitely – we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man,
0: McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean really, folks, did you even think of that? Powerful. What we lose when we, I mean, 7,000 languages, we could lose 90% of them. Crazy. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, what would the world be like if we could all respect the human dignity in our fellow man? What would it be like if I could actually see the fact that uh, you're more than a male or a female, you're more than a doctor or, you know, a teacher what if I could see beyond that, beyond the color, beyond what would it? What would happen to us? How would I treat you differently if I actually could see that deeper, more powerful person in you? C.S. Lewis had a great uh, th- uh, thought uh, that I'll kind of paraphrase. I don't. I probably won't do it justice. But if we could just see the deity, the goodness inside of the person we sit next to. Yeah, he he inferred that we'd we'd have a, a desire to fall on our knees to worship them if we could actually get to the goodness that is inside of every one of us. And then um, you know we hear in our political talk, we hear in just all of the legal issues that are going on around the world and the country. We hear in in uh, you know every argument about um, class issues, class warfare, cultural issues diversity issues, male-female issues, just a lack of appreciation and of the seeing the divine. And so how are you doing with that? As you're driving to work, as you're taking care of your family, is there something you can do today, uniquely you, that might help you and me, I'll do it for myself, pick up a game, pick up our game when it comes to respecting the human dignity of others, And is there also a way that we could maybe turn down giving too much power, too much uh, homage and respect to somebody simply because they have material things or they have a a really powerful talent that uh, is so apparent and obvious? Is there a way that we could start to pay more attention to the things that we don't pay attention to? One of my favorite quotes uh, is says it's not the bars that hold the tiger in. It's the space between the bars that hold the tiger in. It's not the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. So the same thing is true when we think about uh, trying to show respect to one another. We have, ma- we have material things. That would be the bars. And then we have the spiritual things, the, the space between the bars. We have the notes, the material things, and we have the space between the notes. And really, it's, it's the spiritual human dignity that we all need to remember. And again, we don't have to dichotomize everything. So it's not animals or humans, but it's both, right? You can respect and love your animals, and you can respect and love the dignity of a human. So what would happen if, if we could change? And what's the one thing you could do today to become that change? Just think about it. But uh, where could you show more dignity? Could you show it more as a as a parent to protect the dignity of your child? How about to protect the dignity of your parents your seniors that you might be taking care of? How about to protect the dignity of the people in your community? Think it over and let's see if we can not elevate our lives by just simply focusing a little bit more on the things we don't necessarily see. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. We've had a couple uh, discussions about poverty. We talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress and stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions, we don't always think big picture, we don't always solve the problems, and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the the LDS church, that, um, you know, is the The sponsor really in the end of this show because of Brigham Young University is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have they they have your church leader will come, your religious leader will come and meet with you, assess and find out why you are struggling in poverty the church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We, have, um, we, we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight or flight brain, we we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding and once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and, and start giving them – and we always think, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay, but again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that will help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs we've got to work on, on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you Are you involved in helping the people around you to get, uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls, they just don't, they're just lazy? If you believe that, You don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor. That's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or, or end Um, some of these these problems, we've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. Just a little advice from uh, Dr. Matt. Our goal again is help us all live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Back, friends, to the Matt Townsend show. You know we've we've all come from families and uh, and some maybe not ideal kind of situations, and not the typical, you know, ma and pa raising you with love and comfort. And sometimes you do have loving, caring parents, and yet you still also have emotional uh, issues and, and um, emotional neglect. From your childhood. Here to talk to us about it is um, uh, Janice Webb. Dr. Janice Webb is a recognized psychologist and an expert with over 25 years of experience. She's the author of the best selling book, Running on Empty Overcome Your Childhood Emotional Neglect, and another book, Running on Empty No More Transform Your Relationships with Your Partner, Your Parents, and your children, and uh, Dr. Janice Webb is. Um, uh, we're honored to have her on the show, and hopefully, she can help us understand this somewhat hidden issue of childhood emotional neglect. Janice, thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: This is talk about this because we've we've heard on the show before about attachment disorder and. Um, is is managing our childhood emotional neglect? Is it similar to attachment disorder? What what happens to us with um, when we when we're suffering from childhood emotional neglect?
4: It's um, it's sort of a very subtle form of attachment um, problem. It's you might, as you said, you might have very loving, caring parents, but if they don't notice what you're feeling and respond to that enough. Um, they, your parents can inadvertently, even if they love you and provide you with everything else, leave you struggling in certain ways that I've seen over and over in thousands, literally thousands of people. And so the footprint of your parents failing you in this very subtle way is growing up to feel kind of disconnected from yourself and unsure of what you want and what you feel and what you need, putting other people before yourself. And a kind of a a feeling of emptiness. And that's because you're disconnected from your own feelings, which are essential to make you feel really connected in the world.
0: Mm. So this is because we've had our emotions neglected young. It seems like we're kind of disconnected from them when we're older.
4: Yes. the, The message when your parents don't notice your feelings or if you grow up in a family that really just doesn't talk about or address emotions in general, the message, the sort of um, subliminal message you receive is emotions don't really, they're just irrelevant or they're not welcome in this home. And so as a child, to cope with that, your brain automatically pushes your feelings down in a way and you grow up just ignoring your own feelings, which feels like just what everybody does, but it's not because your feelings are what connect you to other people, what help you make decisions. Your feelings motivate you. They're your passion. They tell you what you want. They tell you what you need. And if, you're not, if, you're, if you don't have access to that font of energy and direction, you end up feeling a little bit lost in life.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, because then what would you, you know, base your decisions on? If you can't trust your emotions or recognize your emotions, then you are, I guess, you're rudderless.
4: Exactly. And that's why people who grow up this way and who end up with what I call CEN, childhood emotional neglect, um, as adults tend to put too much emphasis on other people's opinions and try to figure out what do other people think I should say, what do other people think I should do. And um, it really doesn't work out very well. You don't end up getting your own needs met when you're living that way.
0: Hmm. And... um. This isn't something, I guess, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say, oh, back to the parents, messing it up again.
4: Yeah, I know. But
0: it's not, it's not your intent. It's just that some of us, we don't know how to manage emotion anyway, and then we're raising our children with emotion.
4: Exactly. It's not really, for most parents, unless they're really self-involved or abusive or addicted or something like that, it's not their fault at all. Um, And this is why I'm trying so hard to call attention to this problem because so many people were raised by parents who were blind to emotion. And so they grew up blind to their own emotion. They're blind to their children's emotion, and it just repeats over and over through generations on and on. And it can be stopped is the big important thing. It really can be stopped um, once you decide to change this in yourself. You can fix it, and then your kids don't have to grow up this way.
0: So part of it, I guess, is recognizing the, uh, the blindness to it and the, uh, to talk about that. So, so to know if kind of uh, you were talking about the footprint of it, give us some more examples of how we would know if we have um, this childhood emotional neglect um, issue, and then what can we do about it?
4: Yeah, so I think it's, it's really hard to know because it's so hard to remember what your parents didn't do when you were growing up. You know, they didn't right. notice your emotions. That's a non-event. So it's so hard to know. But if, you're, if someone's listening to me now and identifies with what I'm saying or thinks, hmm, maybe this could be me, um, I did develop a special questionnaire to help people figure out if they grew up this way and if it's still affecting them. And it's on my website, EmotionalNeglect.com. It's the Emotional Neglect test or questionnaire, and uh, people can just sign up and take it. It's free. Um, And the way to fix it, um, I've developed a series of steps that works really well. I've done it in my office. I have an online program to help people, to walk people through it. And it's really just a matter of tuning in, you know, beginning to recognize that your feelings do matter. And it's amazing what happens when you start paying attention to your own feelings. And actually trying to get in touch with them, you can break down the wall that blocks them off and um, just paying attention starts breaking it down and you'll start to notice yourself feeling more and you can actually start listening to what those feelings are telling you and the more you do that, the more you get and it's just a matter of then learning the skills to manage those emotions and all of that gets transferred down to your kids. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Well, and it's um, it seems like one of the greatest resources we probably could give our kids is, you know, a better understanding of how to read their own, you know, their own compass, their own emotional insides.
4: Exactly. It's a, a very important part of emotional intelligence, which we now know is as important or more important than IQ in mm. life, happiness, and success.
0: Do I wonder if, um, do you see a correlation between people that have CEN and um, anxiety and depression? And is it is it maybe that they manifested anxiety and depression younger, which is why that their emotions were more oppressed by their parents?
4: Um, I don't really think it happens. That's a really good thought, but I don't think it happens that way for most people. I think that when your feelings are walled off, you don't get a chance to work through them and deal with them. So there might be anger, sadness, hurt, and other emotions that are just blocked off. So you don't even realize you have them, but they're over on the other side of this wall. And, you know, just sort of sitting there and they get touched off really easily because you're not managing them and i think that is a big contributor to why people get depressed and why people get anxious is because of all these cut off feelings that are just sitting there roiling away needing to be processed
0: mm. is um a- a- as you look at this long term uh, you-, you said some of the impact is that we're kind of blind to our emotion we feel we feel kind of uh, emotionless maybe not knowing where to turn what are some other things that happen to us if we have childhood emotional neglect?
4: Yeah, so it's sort of a um, going through life not feeling like you don't really belong. A lot of people who grew up this way say that they feel like other people have some vital life ingredient that they don't have. You know, it's sort of this sense of looking around and seeing people who are really connected walking down the street or laughing and talking in a lighthearted way. It's almost like living life um, less in color
3: Mm.
4: and just feeling a little different than other people and maybe wondering, you know, another big component of this is you may look back and see all the ways your parents were there for you, all the things they did give you, and feel like you had a great childhood. So, Whatever doesn't feel right inside of you, you just feel like you're flawed, like it's your fault. Mm. You know, it can't be my parents' fault. I'm the one who's really, you know, I should be happier. I should be more this or more that. And so it's sort of a deep feeling of being inadequate or um, flawed.
0: Is Is this a more common issue today than before? Is that why you're now understanding it more? Or has it just been going on forever and we're just now you know putting a name on it
4: well i think it's been going on forever and i think that because it it's not you know the mental health profession looks at what happens to people to explain their psychology and this is really something that doesn't happen for people it doesn't happen to people it's something that fails to happen for them so it's just so invisible and subtle and it's not dramatic at all for most people. It's just an everyday, tiny life event that if it happens some, is not a problem, but if it crosses a certain threshold, it becomes a problem. So I think it's just been really hard for the mental health profession to really see this and start to realize that it's a genuine problem that is just rampant in the world.
0: Mm. and it seems like um it might be uh i don't know it, it seems like we would go numb because of it this causes us to kind of numb out which you see a lot of, of people numbing out of life and we we were you know a lot of people attribute this numbing nature of people to kind of uh the technology world and you know we're all just drawn to our machines and we disconnect from the world. But those similar patterns might be happening simply because of our our inability to deal with our own emotion.
4: I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly right. There are so many ways. You know, a lot of people who have CEN feel numb, and that's a problem for them. They'll say, I feel empty, I feel numb. And when they start welcoming their feelings back and dealing with them, they don't feel numb anymore. Mm. Um, But other people have all of these emotions cut off from themselves, and so they're depressed or they're anxious, and they never know when those feelings are going to come back through the wall, and they won't feel well. And so they spend a lot of time trying to make sure that doesn't happen, staying really distracted, staying engaged never really wanting to sit with themselves and those are the people that are chronically busy um, and avoiding their own emotions
0: yeah uh, we're speaking with Dr. Um, Janice Webb, who is a recognized psychologist, an expert with over 25 years of experience, and the author of the best-selling books "Running on Empty," "Overcoming Your Childhood Emotional Neglect," and "Running on Empty No More: Transform Your Relationships with Your Partner, Your Parents, and Your Children." She has a website uh, that you can go to as well to get more articles and more information. Uh, but Janice, when I when I look at this, um, so if I've kind of been um, had my emotions neglected in my childhood, and I'm recognizing it now. What's what's one or two things I can do today? Uh, I mean, go. I can go to your website and learn the the skills and the tools and the steps. Is there something I can just do immediately that would help me at least start to connect back into my emotion?
4: Yes, um, you can start checking in with yourself several times a day. Um, close your eyes when you're alone and turn your f- attention inward and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? And that is a really powerful tool. There are a few more steps to it. I mean, you can do it just that simply over just one minute time, um, but there is a, more, a, a way to do it that is a little more effective that um, requires a few steps, and it's in my first book, Running on Empty, overcome your childhood emotional neglect. Um, But uh, in addition to that, you can start writing down, even if you don't come up with a feeling when you do that exercise, it still takes a little chip out of your wall. So every time you do it, it's beneficial, Hmm. even if you don't feel anything.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's got to be overwhelming. We've had a man on the show before that um, had – he had – Asperger's, and they were able to somehow reverse it temporarily um, with some some research they were doing at a university. And all of a sudden, he could feel and connect with other people. And he found it actually, he actually connected into his emotion for the first time. And he found it, he said it was horrible. <laughs> it was like, shocking. Do you notice as people start to reconnect to their f- emotions that, that it's, it is, it's, it's like, it's difficult. To, to start feeling again.
4: Well, that's interesting. He said it was horrible.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, it is scary for people, and I think it stops. A lot of people stop short of really doing this process because, and I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I don't want to find out what's on the other side of the wall. Right. And I completely understand that. But the thing is, it's there anyway, and it's driving you outside of your control. So if you were going to fall apart or become a mess by getting in touch with it, it would have already happened because it's already there. All you're doing is taking control of it when you allow yourself to feel it. So even if it, it might be unpleasant in certain ways at certain times, depending on what's there, um, it's really no more unpleasant than leaving it blocked off.
0: All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, that, it is, it's, it's still acting on us and with us. And then um, I guess the cool thing about uh, understanding this is that you can then not hand it down to the next generation. Instead, you can hand down he- healthier emotional uh, practices to your family.
4: Yeah, that's actually why I wrote the second book. It's because once you start paying attention to your emotions and working on learning the skills, it makes such a big difference and how you feel in your life, it's just, it's amazing. But then you have the person you're married to or your partner, you know, you have your parents who emotionally neglected you, and you feel differently about them once you realize that this has happened to you. And then you have your kids, and you may realize that you have not taught them about emotion, and you haven't been enough aware of their feelings, and that can make people feel, really confused and guilty and lost, um, but there are all sorts of great things that you can do once you become aware to change how you are in all of those relationships, and once you start paying attention to your children's emotions, even if they're adults, even if they're toddlers or teenagers, you can start making a different sort of connection with them that changes everything.
1: Mm.
0: Powerful stuff. Dr. Janice, uh, thank you so much for your insight, your your help, and your time. Again, everybody, you can go to our website, drjaniceweb.com, drjaniceweb.com, where you can get uh, more of those information, the uh, questionnaires as well, articles, everything you need to be able to uh, to help understand this idea of childhood emotional neglect. Really, it does show you the importance of connecting and understanding a person's emotion and allowing some space and some time for them to share those feelings that are most important to them. Let's uh, take a break, come back. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner on how to get real with emotion. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, isn't it it interesting that we now, in today's day and age, we notice more and more people um, suffering from anxiety. We're trying to figure out why that is. There's probably a lot of reasons with technology, with expectations. We've done a lot of parenting changes over the years where we try to absorb all potential ills from our children. Um, So they're basically, you know, the ideal would be they grow up in a world that I guess is so germ free and clean and perfect that there is no stress in life. And yet maybe that lack of stress is causing stress. Um, Do you feel like, though, that you're great at understanding and recognizing the emotion of your children? Do you have the ability to handle their emotional differences? And and by the way, remember that some emotional outbursts are just normal, right? Most of them are just normal. It's, uh, you know, there's the... There's the differences in ages and developmental stages and the ability that some people, you know, at some certain ages, children don't have the ability to manage certain emotions yet. They don't have the clarity to, to just, you know, think their way through it and to cognitively change what they're feeling. So we may not want to push that on a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, but sometimes what you can do is just help recognize um, that, that these pressures in life exist that they're there. And uh, not only are they there but they're actually pretty valuable. It's it's valuable for these kids to recognize what they're feeling. They're frustrated. And so one of the most valuable tools I think we can use when and again this takes a little patience and if you're not in a position where you want to be patient enough to let your kids share and go through their process their emotion, you know, you've got stuff to do. Yeah, yeah I don't care how you feel about the lawn, just mow it. <laughs> We may not care, but if you don't care, they know it, right? And so, there's a time where we should recognize the emotion, and it's one of the it's one of the I think most powerful skills I've learned as a parent is um, when I see they're angry, recognize it, and don't just don't just notice it and react to their anger and their frustration, but hold it up for them to see. You are frustrated that you have to go mow the lawn. You're frustrated. I can see that. Tell me about it. And then you invite them to share about their emotion. If I can recognize my child is happy, then that tells my child I pay attention to him or her. If I can recognize that they're sad, that tells my child I pay attention to you. And I care enough to want to know why. Why are you happy? Why are you sad? but I also show them that they're always communicating to me about their emotion. Part of emotional intelligence is the ability to, you know, recognize the emotion of others, but also the ability to lower those emotions. We all know what we need to do if we want to tick someone off, right? We can. Everyone listening can think of 10 things you could do today to go make somebody incredibly angry at you. Think about it. All you'd have to do is you know, when your wife says, "Oh, what a day," she's expressing emotion, right? Can you can you think right now of one thing you could say that would absolutely just make her frustrated with you? Oh, you think you had a tough day? Yeah, it sounds like it was really hard. Would you stay home all day? Hmm. See where that's going? That ain't going to be pretty. So instead, what if we could recognize the emotion? You seem tired. You seem exhausted. I'm hearing, I'm picking up, it sounds like you had a hard day. What's going on? And invite them to share the emotion. The reason we want them to share the emotion is because then I can get more information about what they're feeling, right? Instead of me having to make it up, I can get them to share their emotion. And by the way, by sharing their emotion, it also helps to lower their emotion. By By me recognizing it and asking them to share it and explore it with me, They then start to lower their own emotion. You want to help people, uh, you know, help your children when they're in the middle of a tantrum. Recognize the emotion and see if you can't get them to share the story behind the tantrum. You don't have to agree with the story, but you can hear it. You can understand it. You can start to make sense of it. And that will just do nothing for you but give you more information. One of my favorite quotes about this, uh, about this emotional management process is, um, in order to influence someone, you must first be influenced by them. And um, in order to be influenced, I have to listen to them, right? Uh, another great quote is by a guy named Joe Thomas that says, you can't meet a need that you don't understand. And just because I understand your need doesn't mean I need to meet it. But we need to be willing to show our kids, our family, the people we love, that I can see you have a need and I'm, I'm willing to help you meet it. But I want to know what's going on first. And I may not meet your need. Once I learn what's going on, I may actually come back with a completely different approach that you may not like. But I'll know better how to handle it, better what to say. So we just need to recognize that emotions exist. Hold those emotions up and put a label on it for them and let them then explain the label. And by doing this, you put a little bit more responsibility back on them to own their emotion, that their emotions have names, and that they can share what's going on with their emotion. That's so much better than just ignoring it, than telling the child to be quiet, than not ever addressing an emotion. Think about most of your most difficult issues you'll ever have in life are surrounded by emotion. And if you've never been able to feel safe in your emotion boy that's a scary that's a scary life how do you proceed forward in a life that you know you're not emotionally ready to take care of the only way to get through that would be to numb and then the numbing would come down to drugs or alcohol or meds or opioids or anything else to help you get through it including just escaping in your technology so it is something folks that every one of us can do a little bit better of the number one key is recognize the emotion to the person i can see you're frustrated I can see you're sad. Make sure when you recognize the emotion, you're not real judgmental. I wouldn't even ask it as a question. I'd state it. You seem bummed. You seem down. Then you can say, what's up? Explain. You seem happy. Tell me about your day. So um, it's just, it's basic, right? It's basic, but it's hard. It's, It's hard, basic. Let's just try. Let's just all try a little bit better. To recognize the people that are hurting, and actually say something in a loving way, if your spirit and your tone is right, and you show you just want to understand and help, that'll go a very long way to help people allow to allow people to share their emotions. Anyway, just my opinion. I'm your coach, your guide on the side. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back. You know, if you ever feel like the weekend simply isn't long enough to uh, regenerate and to rejuvenate, it's probably because it isn't. You got too much to do from home improvements to soccer games with the kids to just having some time to relax, maybe go on a date. These things, uh, they're not easy to accomplish in two and a half days. And so our guest, uh, we had a guest, Dr. Paul Powers, on the show. He's a management psychologist and consultant. He was on the show a while ago and talked about the pros and cons of a four-day work week. And I continued the interview um, by asking how can an employee approach their employers about starting a four-day work week?
2: I would start by uh, going online. They can go to my website, by the way, and, 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 and download it, drpaulpowers.com, and bring it in to human resource people. And say, I'd like you to read this. I'd like us to have an open forum. Let's have a town me- company town meeting. Let's discuss this, see if we might at least try it to see how it works out for our business, because I think it's a good Business idea. Again, we're not talking about something that, oh, this is kind of warm and fuzzy, yada, right. yada, you know, kumbaya, et etc. et cetera. Yeah. This is a good, solid business idea. Let's discuss it. Let's see how we might try it. You know, there's going to be, a, uh, you're an over the road driver, uh, you're a bus driver, there may be many situations where it doesn't work however the reality is already that there's some i forget exactly what the number is i think it's uh, you know it's over 40 percent of companies are already offering work uh, flexible four-day work weeks to some to some employees again it might not fit all employees within your organization and it might not fit all organizations but um uh, but let's try it. It's
0: a great idea. Well, and it might even be a way to stand out. I mean, if you're proactive enough to go get the article – in fact, we just posted it on our Twitter feed. So at Dr. Matt Show, there will be a link to to the article and to your site there, um, uh, drpaulpowers.com. But it might make a, be a way that I can go stand out with my boss and say, hey, this look at me. I really want to try this. I think it would work let me be the tester and if i go hit it out of the park i stand out
2: well one of the one of the ways to get promoted in a competitive environment is to be focusing on unmet needs to be producing creative uh, solutions to problems that exist to look to where my creativity my ideas uh, my options my discussions my teamwork with other people can improve the bottom line it's it's being uh an integral part of the enterprise rather than i'm here to punch my ticket i'm here as a worker bee uh and i want to leave most of my brain power on the doorstep as i work in as i walk in and a lot of a lot of organizations uh, uh i work with organizations who are looking to get away from that mentality. I call it uh, sort of the the, the, the the burrow complex, where people still are thinking in terms of the carrot and the stick. Yeah. Uh, that works well for donkeys, works well for burrows, uh, really doesn't work at all well for human beings. Because human beings are not motivated by a stick or a carrot. They are motivated by independence, by flexibility, by challenge, by the quality of their colleagues, those are the things that move people to motivation.
0: Yeah, that move people
2: to be more productive.
0: And 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 so part of that is me seeing that I need to I need to kind of be my own my own my own product, my own company, where where I I'm fighting for a new way of doing this, but I'm bringing something to the company that is unique and and will we'll cooperate, we'll work together on it.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's like my career becomes my, my job, yeah. uh, which is a part of my, my career as I'm building it, becomes my own little enterprise. And I'm looking, for, I'm looking for ways every day to improve things beyond just the scope of my job. That's how one gets recognized. And once one gets recognized, that's how one gets promoted. And that's hmm. how one gets raises. And those are all good things.
0: Yeah. And we, I guess when we when we as we're wrapping this up, Paul, does there's there's no harm to trying it, but be informed. So we've got to get we got to get that article you're talking about. And uh, at some point, though, you if you're not liking your current condition, it might also be worth, you know, looking into other options, finding other organizations that may be more that are more supportive of this
2: life is too short I tell people all the time life is too short to be miserable 40 or 50 hours a week uh, if you are not happy in your job the first thing I suggest you do is take a good look in the mirror are you in the right job are you putting enough into it so that you're getting enough out of it or are you sitting there you know expecting to be rewarded for something you're not producing now if if that is not the case then maybe you need to look at the function you're in. Maybe working in the financial end of things or the administration end of things is not your cup of tea. You should be looking at a different job, different type of job. However, again, we answer that question and say, no, really, you know, I'm an accounting type of gal. I really love this, et cetera, et cetera, but it's still not working out. Well, then now the question becomes, if it's not you and your attitude, and your work habits, and your work ethic, and all that. And if it's not the function that is the job itself, well, maybe it's the environment. And at that point, it may well be appropriate to start getting a couple of my books and figuring out uh, how to change jobs, how to move forward. But uh, a good job is a hard thing to find. No two ways about it. It's yeah. a, it's a full. It can be a full time job looking for a job, so that yeah, I would I don't even though I sell books about job change. I would always have people take the first two steps first before they think of strapping on their parachute and bailing out.
0: That was Dr. Paul Powers, a management psychologist and consultant, also um, author of the book "Don't Wear Flip Flops to Your Interview" and other obvious tips that you should be following to get the job you want. Yeah, you don't need to jump. You don't need to bail out too quickly, but you also might be able to push for a better life and uh, by you know improving your, your results, improving your um, output, that sometimes gives you a lot of power and a lot of freedom. Well, we will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on this show to give you the latest and greatest research and information so that you can live and create the life you want to create, a healthier, longer living life, one that can touch more. Hearts and more minds. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. That